welcome to the How I Healed podcast. I am joined today by my co-host, Mary Lou Singleton, who is a family nurse practitioner, herbalist, and apprentice-trained home birth midwife. She has been caring for the health of New Mexican families for over 25 years. Mary Lou believes all healthcare modalities, from allopathic medicine to energy work and everything in between, have healing potential. That healing is always an individual journey to be supported by community, and that when it comes to healing, effectiveness is the measure of the truth. She is a critic of the pharmaceutical industry and the mainstream medical industry, which promotes drug dependence and chronic disease maintenance rather than healing. She believes healing is always possible and co-created the How I Healed podcast to share stories of healing, hope, and recovery. Thanks, Jocelyn. I'm Mary Lou, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Jocelyn McDonald, who is an artist and storyteller. She is enlivened by the infinite potential of humans to heal and helps others walk this path through her art and music. Her healing practice focuses on making and finding meaning out of the crises and major choice points of our lives. She offers one-on-one -on -one support through coaching and archetypical astrology and tarot. She specializes in assisting with psychedelic integration and pharmaceutical cessation. So on today's first episode of the How I Healed podcast, we are really just introducing why it felt so important and exciting for us to work together to create this podcast. Great. I have been wanting to um, to share stories of healing in this format for, for a while and wasn't really coming together. And then you and I were hanging out, Jocelyn, and just talking about the importance of sharing stories of uh, people recovering from conditions that the mainstream medicine system tells us are not curable, correct? And we decided, you know, we both have this passion to share these stories and to to really shine a light on the fact that healing is possible and that people do recover. And the best way to do that is to um, embrace your, your own story. And one of the ways we can do that is to hear other people's stories. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is a topic that you and I have been obsessively somewhat obsessively talking about for many years since we've known one another and i think that you know over the course of this podcast listeners will heal will hear both of our own healing journeys um inside and outside of the allopathic medical system but part of what brings us together on this topic in addition to our own experiences individually healing um is this awareness that when we look out at the society that we live in and in the United States, so many people are engaging with medicine in a way that feels really backwards to how medicine ought to be used. And for me, what this kind of means is that I would like for medicine to step in when people are experiencing crises in their health in such a way that they nevertheless maintain their own sovereignty and their own personal agency in the healing process where they aren't seeking an authority to take away their problems, but are co-creating 
their health with the support of people who have lots of experience and knowledge in doing so. And instead of that model, what I see is people going to experts who almost curse them by giving them a diagnosis that they then come to identify really strongly with. And I say that because that's partly what happened to me. I I was diagnosed with several things that I came to identify really strongly with. And once you carry that identification, you will submit to all sorts of things that would violate your own agency without even framing it that way. You no longer see it as an issue of sovereignty or agency because you've kind of handed over your healing to an authority figure or an expert. And that will pave the way for you to be surveilled um, by doctors through invasive tests and imaging that of course comes with potentially harmful side effects that uh, that you'll be that you'll submit to surgeries potentially or pharmaceutical prescriptions that um, you know might address, symptoms, but never really manage to address the root cause. And the root cause is often not even in question. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't, we don't look to achieve a state of healing that, that allows us to live freely without intervention. We look to interventions to maintain us. And, and that's kind of where I'm coming from. Mary Lou, what do you think? Uh, Would you add to that? I would agree with that. And and because I am, you know, my my goal is to help people heal. If that authoritarian model that you're describing actually was resulting in healing, mm-hmm. I would support it. I yeah. I think that if that was the way to truly get better from all of these chronic conditions that are plaguing our people, you know, our, our fellow humans living in, in, you know, we're both in the United States where we are especially chronically ill. If that was actually healing us, I'd be a fan of it. And mm-hmm. instead, what I see is, um, you know, we have this authoritarian model of healthcare where you present yourself to the healthcare provider of, of which I am one. I, mm-hmm. I am a, an allopathic medical provider. Um, and, um, you, you get your diagnosis and then you get medication to manage that condition for the rest of your life is sort of how that's set up there. Most of these drugs, we don't have any exit plan within medicine for ever getting people off of them. We're considered, um, you know, chronic disease is, is forever. We all know that too. If if you've ever gone in the hospital for a procedure, you go into the system, like a mainstream corporate healthcare system for even an urgent care visit. When you get your notes, every diagnosis you've ever had is listed on there, Mm -hmm. right? You can't shake these chronic illness diagnoses, even if, you know, you were once told you were type two diabetic, but your blood sugar has been completely normal for 15 years without medication. You still are considered a type two diabetic for the rest of your life where you still like my, my notes still say asthma, no matter how many times I tell people I, I no longer identify as having asthma. I'm, I'm not (laughs) sure I ever, you know, um, like I, I had symptoms that got called asthma, but I, I no longer feel like that's something necessary to put on my medical records, but you can't get that off of there because the entire system is based on, um, 
chronic illnesses forever and we're going to manage it forever with medication and that is healthcare and it's not working people aren't getting better and a large percentage of our population that system is um working for them in the sense that that's what they want it's it's um it's what they understand it when they are in distress they seek that um and i do you know have many patients where that's the model we practice but my my joy and my goal for all humans is true healing and i love it mm-hmm. when people come with this understanding that um i want to heal and i want assistance with that and what that means to me is i at the end of this process i will no longer have the symptoms and identity of this condition that that is now causing me distress mhm yeah I, i really love what you said and and it was kind of encapsulated in our introduction to effectiveness is the measure of whether or not a health intervention is working and so often when we look at the um the maintenance of chronic conditions there i mean how the, how could you call it effective if you can never get off the medication um it's it's kind of bonkers. I mean, is, is that too simplistic? It's just kind of bonkers that we would sign up for a lifetime subscription because it seems so patently obvious that we've been turned into customers. Like if we if we have even a little bit of cynicism here, then we would see that our disease is enriching individuals and corporations. Absolutely. And it's It's interesting to me that that's a controversial take that you know it's health the healthcare sector is the biggest sector of our economy um you know it's uh, it's a growth industry it's getting bigger and bigger and the more sickness there is the um the more money there is to make yeah. and there's no money in healing um mm-hmm. you know there's temporary money possibly but there's no long-term money in someone getting better and freeing themselves from daily pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because it is such a minefield to discuss. People's health is is literally the most personal topic we could be talking about and there's so much um there's there's just uh so much sensitivity around that that I do want to say that um I'm not a person who stands in opposition to people taking pharmaceuticals. I feel like that is I am a free will activist. I feel like people have a choice to do what they want to do. I think that in the short term those medications can alleviate suffering. I'm I'm pretty clear with people that in the long term they don't create healing and um that's just something we need to be honest about. but i'm not standing in judgment of anyone at whatever place in their healing journey they are and i think that it's um it's not my place to say what's the right healing path for anyone but my um my love and my my passion in my life is to work with people who do want to liberate themselves and health is freedom right to yes. to be in a state of health is freedom to not be dependent on corporations is freedom to um to have a clear and sober mind is freedom and that um that is what drives me what drives me is not to stand in judgment of this industry and the people uh engaging with it it's 
to really shine a light for people who would like to move away from that that, and let them know that's possible. I really like what you said. Um, It brought up for me some thoughts about where I stand, uh, especially on pharmaceuticals. I've become a hardliner where I myself won't take any pharmaceutical drugs, including ibuprofen. And um, it got me thinking about my, um, in my experience, um, that's been kind of a reaction to the number and uh, diversity of medications that I was prescribed and taking on a daily basis. But I have the same orientation that you do. I think that everybody has free will to take pharmaceuticals and it's not for me to judge which kind and how many. And I really like, um, I really like what you said, because I think that there is an important role that pharmaceuticals played in my own healing journey. If I had not taken those 10 different pharmaceuticals at those different times, would I have ever gotten to the place where I am now, which is fed up with pharmaceuticals? Probably not, mm-hmm. you know? And so that was a really critical part of me accessing a greater personal freedom. If I hadn't had that experience, then I would not have pursued my own sense of freedom without pharmaceuticals. And it also triggered something in me too, because, you know, I don't think I've ever told you this, Mary Lou, but something that I saw you post on Instagram, or I mean, Facebook, probably in 2013 or something about ibuprofen was one of the first things that uh, triggered something in me to question my reliance on ibuprofen. So I've always had extremely bad periods and they were, di- you know, I was diagnosed with endometriosis and there were years when I, I would take the maximum amount of ibuprofen, uh, on my period. And, um, you know, I would pair it with Tylenol mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I, as I, as I made my journey away from pharmaceuticals, um, not because of ibuprofen, but because of, you know, way heavier drugs that I was on, I started to really question ibuprofen because I identified a way in which it was me numbing out my experience of of my own body. And I am part of what um, causes me to be so critical of pharmaceuticals for myself is that I don't want to numb the sensations of my body because I think that they're important. I think that they have a language that they speak in all their own. And that for me to hear that language, I can't numb out. And I think that as I grow and heal, I'll probably get to a point where I can happily take the occasional ibuprofen or the, you know, Sudafed or whatever, without having to um, be so reactionary or controlling about it. But I would really encourage people who, um, yeah, who are, who are like walking this journey to think about in what ways they're, they don't, have the tolerance to experience the sensation of being embodied because it requires a high tolerance to be embodied, (laughs) you know, like a lot of sensations are going to arise. And sometimes we have no choice, but to numb out, you know, sometimes like those cramps are literally so bad that you won't be able to, 
get things done in your life. And because our lives are, you know, contain external constriction that we can, we can work to modify or we can, we can, you know, work within, but, but like, nevertheless, like, let's say, you know, you, you just have to take a road trip one day on your period. Or I remember a friend of, a friend of both of ours, Amy was moving house on the day that she had her period. And, um, you don't get to opt out of moving all of your belongings onto a truck with you and your five children and your husband, just because you're bleeding. Like that's the day that it fell on today. We're going to drive a moving truck, you know, 800 miles and, and that and that has to happen with the help of ibuprofen because it's not possible to be fully embodied experiencing the high sensation of those period cramps and support your family and be with your family in the way that they right. need you know what i mean absolutely we have to figure out what our our tolerance is right mm-hmm. um oh there's so much there um you know we are a, a drug dependent culture i was um just looking at some of the statistics this morning that that over 60% of adults in the United States mm. take pharmaceuticals on a daily basis. Many take more than one uh, prescribed pharmaceutical on a daily basis. Um, with children, it depends on the age group, but you know, among little kids, we're getting over, over 10%, 12% of, of young children are taking medication on a daily basis. And then as you get into the adolescence, whenever children start identifying with these, um, you know, the medicalization of, of what used to be called angst and mm-hmm. um, the, what used to be considered normal um, identity development is getting medicalized that now we're at the point where over 50% of our youth identify as mentally ill. And many of them yes. are taking daily pharmaceuticals. So yeah, we're, we are a drugged culture. And I think that your um, cold Turkey approach is, is the right one for many people to, step out of that and just experience what it is to not be drugged because yes. that's a rare state right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I, when you were talking, I was thinking of the certain things that I, I do continue to occasionally drug myself and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and why, why do you drug yourself? What are the conditions <laughs> well, under which you're like, yeah, I'm ready to numb out. <laughs> okay. My seasonal allergies are one where, yeah. <laughs> And that's something that I really should focus more on healing. Like I, I am at this, I have to, you know, uh, examine my own medicine, my own medicine, my own uh, healing path and be like, why, why do I tolerate that? Why am I not working harder mm. to heal this condition that causes me a lot of suffering that I've seen other people heal? I know other people who no longer have seasonal allergies. Yeah. What would it take for me? I know what it would take. It would take like some major dietary changes that mm. I, um, for some reason, I'm not interested in implementing at this point in my life. It would probably take a lot of psycho spiritual work about not feeling um, safer at home in this world. Is oh. right. My understanding oh. of allergies is my, you know, my body is uh, defending myself against something that's not actually a threat. Wow. You know, and um, and yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Obviously, <laughs> that's that would be. Uh, um, exciting, uh, psycho-spiritual endeavor to, to unpack all of that. There are other modalities, you know, acupuncture, NAAT, um, things What's that, NAT? oh, NAAT. I never remember exactly what the N stands for because it's the last name of the, the man who invented oh. it. And the AET is allergy elimination technique. Okay. And I know okay. many people have healed very serious allergies with NAET and, um, it's a process that involves, time and, and money and commitment. And I've seen it work. I think it would work for me. I just haven't 
made space for that. And, and I should look at why not? Because my seasonal allergy symptoms at least twice a year for at least a month at a time caused me a lot of suffering and distress. And I often treat them with herbs with, with freeze-dried nettles, which work well for me, or I'll take quercetin. Um, um, and sometimes I just break down and take over the counter antihistamines yes. because I'm so miserable. I just, and you I have to live your life. It. Like have life to live doesn't my life. slow down. Yeah. Right. Right. The other thing I occasionally drug is I, I do occasionally take an ibuprofen, you know, if I'm in a lot of pain and I need to get things done or I can't sleep, I'm talking, you know, far less than once a month, um, yeah. a few times a year. And, and again, I don't have judgment of anyone else. This is just about my oh. healing process. But when I do take an ibuprofen, I really sit with it and think about my ancestors. And I think, oh, I, my great, great, great grandmothers would have loved to get their hands on this stuff. Yes. <laughs> this would have been yes. a gift. And I take it out as a way of honoring them for the days that I know they were having to push through horrific pain and continue to tend to many children and do chores that had to get done or no one could eat or drink that day. Right. And think, here's to you, grandma. I'm I'm going to... I'm going to take this and, and hopefully if, you know, in the quantum field, like you'll feel me being grateful and loving of you for, you know, I love my ancestors. I love what they, what they endured to allow me to have my turn here. I really love that. And I appreciate it so much. I, I think that um, really encapsulates so much of what it, we cannot approach this, um, question of when to seek outside authorities or outside help through a lens of judgment, either of ourselves or of others, because the process of self-healing must begin first from a place of accessing self-love. So you can't do that while you're judging yourself. Mm -hmm. Like those two things are incompatible. And I would say you can't do that when you're judging other people either. Yes, absolutely. It's, you know, and those of us who've who've wrestled with um that kind of judgment whether you know if we grew, grew up in um like harsh religious practices i know that's that's how i ended up with a lot of uh the judging behaviors and mindsets that have brought me suffering through my life i, I think those of us who've wrestled with that and worked to heal that come to the understanding that my my judgment of others is always because I'm not liking something about myself that's being reflected in them. Mm-hmm. And so really um, healing that is, um, I think, an important part of many of our, our journeys to just be in a place of acceptance and and love and observation. You know, I'm practicing that lately of just being, being with people. And uh, and yeah, not being do- rigid and dogmatic. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, just hearing that my shoulders relax. God, mm-hmm. I love I love the expansion process that I've been going through to be less rigid and dogmatic. Thank mm-hmm. you, COVID. <laughs> Thank you, COVID, for awakening in me this, <laughs> this flexibility around my ideologies. Right. Um, I really Co- want... Oh, go ahead. Say COVID brought me to such an examination of, of not, of not really know, like, of not knowing what the truth is, you know, mm-hmm. now, um, yes. so much of, again, I'm, you know, I'm a nurse practitioner. I, I am well-versed in mainstream allopathic medicine. I know what the standards of care are. I know the rationale behind it. I, I don't judge people who want to take that path. Um, I've never believed it's the only path, but COVID made me start judging everything of this, um, sick until proven healthy mindsets of uh, 
we don't know if you're healthy based on how you feel. So we have to test and test and test. And that made me start examining, well, that's true in so many places. We see that very much in prenatal care and birth. And I've been aware of that for decades, but it's made me question all of it of how um, all my dogma around it, as well as all my like it's a very humbling thing to come to the point of realizing we live in a propaganda state and and mm-hmm. I personally don't know what's true about a lot. Mm-hmm. What do I know is true? Um, love the children, take care of the mothers, um, be kind to each other, mitigate suffering where you can, eat good food, drink clean water, <laughs> get some sun. Like these things have always been true. I believe that. Mm-hmm. And I just try to stay with like, okay, what do I know is true? Because Anytime I get rigid and dogmatic, for me, that sets me up for um, I, I'm going to have a pretty big uh, um, dogma burn or reckoning. I'm about to me. be humbled. Yes. <laughs> Life's there you about go. to humble me. <laughs> yeah, I really love your list. I think I couldn't possibly change my mind about any of those things, like taking care of the children and the mothers and uh, enjoying the sun. But about everything else, I want to keep an open mind and be willing to change my mind. And that's not a matter of, uh, that's a matter of wisdom rather than uh, suggestibility. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that I was wanting to, there's so many things from when you were talking about your allergies that I really want, I don't want to lose. And I, and I don't know um, how structured I want to be in this podcast too. I don't want to ramble or become too tangential, but I did want to um, say that, you know, when we were talking about the COVID stuff and the, um, the sick until proven healthy thing, it's not just with COVID. There's so many things like that. And I think that when you go to the doctor these days, the experience is a lot like seeking help from the Hierophant in the tarot deck. The Hierophant is like the Pope and he's the authority that connects you to God. And without that conduit, you can't access the love and forgiveness and salvation of the divine, right? right. So when we go to the doctor, we are asking for an intercessor between us and our perfect whole healed bodies are the integrity of our bodies. We're, we're looking for the intercessor. We're willing to confess our sins and they will be extracted from us. I mean, how often have you gone to the doctor and experienced the feeling that you're in trouble? And it starts when they put you on the scale and they're like, okay, BMI. And, and then it just continues like, uh, you know, they don't, they never trust anything you say. And of course, why would they? You often have to lie. Like, no, I never <laughs> smoke casually because I wanted to talk to somebody on the porch. Like, no, <laughs> I don't ever do that bad thing, you know? So we we set ourselves up to be judged and to seek absolution for our many sins. And so we think we're going to the Hierophant, but what actually ends up happening is we are encountering the devil. And in the tarot deck, in the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, the Hierophant is pictured with, um, you know, he's a, a pope in his stately robes, and there's two monks at his feet, and they are, you know, asking for his um, attention and maybe um, absolution. The, the, the devil card is very, very similar in its imagery in that a central figure is fe- features two 
figures at his feet. And so the devil card features a naked man and a woman and they're bound in chains. And I see this connection with the, with the doctors, because, you know, you think you're going to be, um, to, to receive intercession. And what you're actually doing is getting hooked on something. You're getting hooked on the belief that there's something wrong with you that modern medicine can cure. And you're all, you're often, very often getting hooked on drugs. And mm -hmm. it's like, we, we don't, we think about, um, addiction to stuff like uh, meth mm -hmm. or or even pharmaceutical uh, highly addictive pharmaceuticals like uh, oxycontin or something mm -hmm. like that but we often don't think about the addictive features of maintenance medications like wellbutrin which is almost impossible for people to get off. It's so addictive or even stuff like ibuprofen where there is no change to your behavior or habits. It's not habit. It's not, um, it's not causing you to, you know, betray yourself or your loved ones. It's not disrupting your life, but you also can't live without it. And so there, there becomes an addiction to the disease identity and there becomes a disease, an addiction to the, um, the special pill. Mm. And, um, yeah. which is, yeah, that enslavement of our free will, yes, which is what my understanding of the devil is in many mm -hmm. different yes. traditions, right? Thank that, you. That, yes. yes, thank you for pulling that thread, yes, right. Um, absolutely. And when you're talking, you know, being uh, having been raised very strict Catholic and here, like that, that connection between going to the priest and going to the doctor, and mm -hmm. yeah, we have to confess our sins, and and you're right, like, I um. Growing up and having to go for the time of seven years old, I think everyone who's raised Catholic will relate to this story that, you know, you, you receive your sacraments at age seven. That's pretty mm -hmm. young. And you, um, including the sacrament of confession where you have to right. go confess your sins and you're seven, oh, you're seven. and like, you're trying to, you know, I remember sitting and trying to think of like, what am I going to confess? But at this point you've been raised Catholic. So you feel guilty about everything. Like everything's, a, you know, I mean, I have to go confess that you like, yelled at your brother and you stole your sister's Halloween candy and these yeah. things you shouldn't be doing. Like they, yeah. they don't make your life um, nicer or easier, but instead of it being approached as like, you know, you're engaging in behavior that, um, that isn't creating health and functionality for you. You're taught to feel, feel like you're a, a demonic, sinful person. Yes. And, you and go, you're going straight to hell. You're going to hell unless you go talk to the guy who can forgive you and you give him your list. And then he would usually tell me to go, um, to go say some Hail Marys or sometimes like the progressive young priests would be like, you know, your penance is to help your mom with the dishes tonight or your penance is to to clean your room without complaining. And that's a little more helpful. But nobody ever was like, hey, What's driving you to steal your sister's mm. Halloween candy? Like how, uh, how do we get at the root of this behavior? Thank you. Thank you for bringing it back. Yes. <laughs> how do we get to, at the root of this behavior that's causing suffering in your life and the lives of those around you? Yes. And what needs to change to stop that? Because I don't think guilt and shame and punishment were working from when I looked like at my own, you know, my own, like Peccadillo's, um, versus like major actual sins of people who are really severely hurting others. Um, 
even then, I mean, some people do need to be removed from society, but guilt and shame and punishment isn't going to heal what's driving it. Mm -hmm. And then if we bring that to health, like, yeah, you present yourself to the priest-like figure of the person with the license who can dispense the communion of the the medications. Um, And there often is a, you know, a guilt and a shaming, but it's the same thing. No, we don't, we don't have time to really discuss nutrition. Um, Mm -hmm. Mainstream medical providers really don't know much about nutrition anyway. Um, we don't address, you know, we give more drugs for the addictions, right? We don't address Mm -hmm. what's driving you to smoke those cigarettes, what's driving you to drink the alcohol. It's no like here's drugs to, to substitute for that drug. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And all of those, uh, this is why I'm not a fan of authoritarianism. I don't Mm -hmm. believe that it creates um, health and liberation for humans. Yeah. And you know, I'm really glad that you tugged on that thread too, because it brought me back to the other thing back from our allergy conversation that I really didn't want to miss. And that is that um, my experience in healing myself outside of the medical system has completely and fundamentally changed the way that I view the origin of disease. And when we talk about the root and getting to the root of our symptoms, Um, and how little modern medicine is even concerning itself with the root. I I really think about that. And I would love for us both to dive into, um, to our beliefs about, about that. But, you know, one thing that, um, as as you were saying uh, that about allergies and how it would take psycho spiritual work for you to heal that was just really, it was landing for me. That's another thing that we have deeply in common because I think that all of our disease, I I think that, me, Jocelyn, I'm not going to say that anybody else has to believe this. And uh, I know that most people don't believe this, but my belief um, through encountering German new medicine and traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda um, and, uh, you know, Jungian archetypes is that all disease originates in the psyche other than poisonings or injuries or you know exposure to toxins all disease or originates in the psyche and therefore while there are thousands of interventions that will help and support us like herbs or pharmaceuticals or surgeries or whatever any of our diseases could be healed solely through the power of our own mind. And, um, you know, this is really supported by the placebo effect and by like, you know, lots and lots of studies of people who do different um, meditational methods. But, you know, I just think that when we look at problems like as simple as allergies or the common cold or painful periods, if we approach it from the from the belief that we have the power to heal it and that we already have the tools in our own genes to to make that healing happen, then we are off to a good start. And we can always seek out things that will help and support like herbs, like um, pharmaceuticals or anything like that. But knowing that we have those tools is kind of, for me, the baseline of getting to a life where we're symptom free, because Mm -hmm. without that belief, you have nothing. Right. That's right. No, I think that's beautiful. Absolutely. And I, I also believe 
all healing um, is a psycho-spiritual process. Mm -hmm. And and again, this is my belief. I am I am a free will activist and I, I do not enjoy having the beliefs of others pushed on me and I work hard not to push my beliefs on others. Um, I'm also like a loudmouth opinionated lady. So people, you know, yeah. they hear me freely expressing my very strong beliefs and often hear that as me pushing my belief on them. Yes. That's not my intention. My intention is I, you know, I want to express my belief. And, and if it resonates with you, that's awesome. And if not, don't you don't have to believe it. You're free not yeah. to believe it. Yeah. So I believe what gets denigrated and dismissed as the placebo effect is the best thing we got going for us Absolutely. as a species, you know? Yes. And and it's um it's tragic for me to witness people uh be just, you know, like it's a pejorative to hear the the term the placebo effect is as a pejorative term, like, oh, that's just the placebo effect. The placebo effect rocks. Mm-hmm. Can we have do we have to like you know, as, as words get denigrated and change, like we're watching the, the changing of language so much. We've seen it in our lifetimes of how, um, oh, you know, um, uh, hobo and bum, those are terrible words. So we're going to say homeless people. And now, and now uh, yeah. homeless is okay. homeless is a slur. So now we're saying the unhoused. unhoused. It's like, do we have to come up with a new word? That's not the placebo effect because the placebo effect is a slur now. So denigrated. You know? yeah. And I, I don't want to engage in that. I, but I do want to get to the truth that we are naming with that word, which is our body can heal yes. through the power of belief. Yes. And that we are social animals and our belief in each other's ability to heal also heals. Okay. Yeah. I just got chills all over my body when you said that. (laughs) Right. And that if, if I trust someone and have, if that person has my back and I trust them and I know that they are a source of healing in my life and I come to them in distress, I will receive some degree of healing from whatever they offer me. If that is a person who loves me, Mm. if right. And I think that this is part of the relationship that gets broken is that it is considered unprofessional for healthcare providers to love their patients. And I'm not talking about like be their best friend, or I certainly am not talking about engaging in romantic or sexual relationships. Like again, love has been denigrated as something, but we should are here to love each other and to really be invested in in um, in each other's well being, right? Yeah. Um, and that that piece is broken. That a lot of people don't trust their medical provider and don't feel loved by their medical provider. Mm-hmm. And a lot of medical providers have disdain for their patients just from the so way the system disdain. is yeah is built. So that that often isn't helping. But even in that broken system often the pharmaceuticals are working through a placebo effect because because desperation and faith and people believe it will help and and they do get help from it but i, I don't yeah. want to again i don't want to focus on that broken part i want to get back to that yes if if i'm in distress and i trust you and i love you and i come to you for medicine whatever medicine you give me will provide some healing benefit to me mm-hmm. because because we heal and we can help each other heal. Yeah. Right? I really think that, uh, yeah, we, we can heal and we can help each other heal and to kind of connect the dots with the state of belief when we are in a state of crisis or our own self, um, our, our 
self-conception has turned to disease and um, helplessness, we can turn to others to hold the frequency of health for us that we are not in a position to hold. And so when we go to somebody who has this, this, this belief in healing, that's their dominant frequency, that like healing exists, that there's a state that is symptom free and, and, and where your body is free of, um, the constraint of disease, then we're invited to join them on a higher vibrational level. And I know how insane and woo woo that sounds, but when you say that, like we, like doctors are not connected to the first point, which is love because they're discouraged from doing so. I mean, it's, it's like wrong to love Mm -hmm. your patients. It's, it's considered like you should be pretty much disinvested mm-hmm. in uh, someone else's experience because that's unprofessional. But really the the type of love we're talking about is not enmeshed or in any way codependent. It's that that frequency of of acceptance of all, rejection of none. The, the frequency of compassion where you can where you can look at somebody and say, I see, all that's wrong for you. I I accept all that's wrong. And I encourage you to join me in this other place where all the wrong things can be left behind. I don't know. Mm. Does that sound psychotic? And and like, I know that I sound like a tarot reader right now. It's only because <laughs> I am. <laughs> it's only because I'm that woo-woo. <laughs> no. And you know what? I'm sure that that that's that's medicine whatever came just you know that that just came through you is medicine Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and yes that that place of how do we be in a place of aren't we all striving in this world to be in a place of love isn't that what all the holy books tell us to love one another love one another that's that's what we're instructed over and over again and um and that's you know it's a worthy goal and that's a healing goal for sure Mm -hmm. So back to that, you know, we talked about the placebo effect, but I want to talk about the psycho spiritual story and yeah. how, again, for me, this is my truth that, um, I, you know, I believe I it's it's a, a mythic adventure to be an embodied soul here. Oh God, yes, and that life is a gift, and that we are all living our personal. Um, very important story <laughs> and, and um and i think that our bodies are the vehicles that we live that story through and that our bodies are always telling what's going on with the story you know yes. that our bodies are telling a story and there are other, you know gina korea has written about this there's you know the very popular book the body keeps the score mm-hmm. there's uh gabor mate's book um when the body says no like this is yes. not like i this is not a truth that um I alone possess is in any way, uh, you know, um, uh, new or exciting. It's something many, many people have believed for a very, very long time. And yet we do need to emphasize that it is a truth. I mean, if you want to like, you know, I know how woo woo some of this stuff sounds, but it's all backed up by lots and lots of evidence achieved through the scientific method, the same scientific method that's used to conduct all the rest of these medical, um, all the rest of the medical and pharmaceutical research, like what you're talking about with the body keeps the score and Gabor Mate's when the body says no, the placebo effect by Joe Dispenza, like all of these 
all of these um, things can um, factually and numerologically represent in, you know, hard data, the effect right. of belief on health. Right. There's another book, The Biology of Belief. There's Candace mm-hmm. Pert's work. I'm Candace Pert discovered the endorphin receptor. She's a, you know, award-winning biochemist. And she, um, she was a pioneer of the field, psychoneuroimmunology, talking Mm. about how there, you know, there is no such thing as the immune system. The immune system is the communication network of the entire body. And that she was a, um, someone who used reductionism to argue against reductionism in in medicine. And, and yes, all of this can be, um, expressed through that paradigm and that language the older mm-hmm. i get the less interested i am in backing everything up with the dominant oh, yeah. scientific paradigm and um the I older guess i, I get, just say that for the yeah. skeptics just i know in case right i think that we're out here just making shit up but i no. mean all of this is like fact checkable like there are receipts yes yes there's there's so much and 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 i would feel like if people are skeptical then you know if it's not for you it's not for you for me oh, sure healing comes from um figuring out what the story my body's telling is and and um healing that story of finding like okay if i were reading a a myth about uh you know a woman who's had these things happen to her and now like this this is her body is now uh you know, covered in a rash and she's coming out of her own skin with itching. These are, these are things I've experienced. I'm like, Oh, what, Mm. what does that mean? Like, what is that as a metaphor in this story that I'm so blessed to be, to be living, or if I'm, if I'm blessed to be witnessing it in another person. Mm -hmm. And I have my own, um, beliefs of how I would interpret other people's symptoms in terms of the story of their life, but it's not my place to do that. Each person, like I, I might make suggestions and say, Hey, if this resonates, you know, run with it. If not, we'll just let it fall. Um, mm-hmm. But only the individual experiencing the, the symptomology can, can figure out what it means in their story. Right. And and I wow. think that's where the healing comes from. Oh, Mary Lou, I love hearing you say this because I just, I'm, I, I've known you so long and I consider you such a close friend, but I'm learning in this conversation, how much more we have in common than I even knew. And of course I knew like, because I've seen the way that you engage with myth and the mythic inside of us and outside of us in the larger world and the, in the cosmos itself, I know that you carry this deep wisdom and, uh, and like storytelling capacity, but I had no idea the way that it works its way into your work as an allopathic provider and it it feels even more resonant that we that we like share this podcast together because um obviously as an astrologer and tarot reader myth is the container and the language through which i make meaning of the various crises that arise in my own life and that of others. And so for me, myth and this, um, you know, this language of archetypes has, has been very healing. I think a lot of people would wonder how an astrologer and a tarot reader could consider themselves a healer of anything other than the psychological realm rather than the body. But for me, my body has been healed 
of these various diagnoses and and symptomatic patterns in large part through meaning making because of its capacity to change belief and to challenge the thoughts that we that we think on a, a habitual basis you know we think these thoughts over and over and over until they become beliefs and then the beliefs dictate what we how how the world operates to us because at the end of the day our reality is created from our individual beliefs both on an on an individual level and a societal level i should say on a community community level but um yeah i guess i just feel so inspired to know this about your healing practice right now i'm in awe of you i love you (laughs) well it's completely mutual absolutely so should we wrap this one up and no i have one more thing i have one more thing i think we really have to talk about you know we've talked so much about our i don't want to hear it cat i don't want to hear it get out of here (laughs) oh do you hear him It's, don't. it's 12 15. He ate breakfast, a huge breakfast, and now he's coming in here to beg. This is his mythic story. That's yes. what he's expressing. He's always hungry. <laughs> so one of the things that we were speaking about before we start started recording the podcast, I really just wanted to touch on together because I think it's another shared point of um of how our healing practices overlap in really beautiful ways, even though they are very, very different. And um and I, and it's I just want to dive in a little bit to birth and the importance mm. of birth and the way that we um, structure our beliefs about healing crises and and their and their um, you know alleviation. Oh, right. Um, you know, it's I just have to breathe for a few minutes because I I feel I have so much. Um, to feel and think and express about birth. And anyone who knows me knows that I, I um, am a midwife. I um, was on fire. I had a true calling to midwifery from the time, Mm. from the time I was born, from the time I can remember, I remember being like three, four, five years old. And all I wanted to do was to help women have babies and, Mm that got turned into, oh, that means you want to be an obstetrician gynecologist and, you know, a windy path to that. But so it's, it is my primary love and joy. And, and honestly, it's also my, my very strong belief that birth is the most important issue. Birth is not a side issue. Birth is not a niche issue. Birth is the issue when it mm. comes to humanity and healing and culture, because birth is literally the rite of passage into this life. Yeah. I've heard you say on other podcasts that you can tell a lot about a society by how it views birth. And uh, I that really opened my mind a lot. Right. Because birth is, it is the entrance into into a society, into a culture, and our prenatal and birth practices will reflect everything that is um, all of the belief system that is that is held strongly within that culture. So, what does our culture believe? Um, uh, we're we're very scared of mm-hmm. life and nature and anything that that we can't control. Um, uh, we worship science and technology. We want everything to be measurable and recordable and um, numeric. We we don't like it when things are mysterious. Mm-hmm. We don't believe if something's mysterious, we don't believe in it. We we dismiss it and say it's unprovable. 
So yeah, we are now living in a time, we were talking about this before, I mean, since the industrialization of birth, which um, started in the early 1900s and really took off after World War II in this country, um, by 1950, over 95% of births were happening in the industrial model in the birth system. Um, in, you know, in, in 1900, the the numbers were exactly the opposite. It was one to 5% of births happening in the hospital by 1950, mm -hmm. close to 100%. And not just happening in the hospital, it wasn't like women just moved to the hospital and then the same process happened there. Right. We, Good point. Yeah, right. Um, it became truly an industrial process where women presented themselves to the authorities who were at the time all men. Now we have women in that role as well, but the, it's still an industrial model. And, um, turn their bodies over to um, for the process to be managed. And by, you know, the 1950s, the entire culture recognized that uh, doctors deliver babies, the hospitals deliver the product of babies, deliver humans to our society. We could mm -hmm. go on. There's so much to right. say. Women don't uh, deliver the baby. The, 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 the hierophant delivers the baby. Yes. Yes. The hierophant delivers the baby. The system delivers the baby. Yeah. And, and that, you know, it sounds cliche and trite, but I want to, one of the ways I feel like that is so um, obviously expressed in our culture is that when when we talk to women who gave birth in the mainstream medical system, they describe their entry into motherhood as when I brought you home from the hospital. Yes, right? that is profound. Like we've all heard countless people say that. But when you talk to a woman who's given birth at home, who's given birth undrugged under her own power, not being managed by authority figures, she never says, you know, when the midwife left and yeah. it was me leaving, you know, it was now my job to take care of you or when the midwife put you in my arms or anything. No, it's like when I birthed you, like it's a mm -hmm. continuous, she does not have a separation between, um, between that seamless transition of, of gestation, labor, delivery, birth into your arms. You're still one person with the placenta still attached to you. I mean, most, most American women, um, the cord is cut seconds after birth. So they don't even get that, that liminal state of you're still one, but you're two, mm. you know, there's so much that we've been robbed of. That's a part of our natural design as a species has is being interrupted every day, all day long in the industrial birth model. Can I keep going? Like other yes, things we've lost? Course. I don't think we need to worry too much about time. You know, Joe Rogan's podcasts last for like three hours. So oh, if people right. are tired, they can just turn the fucking podcast off or come back to it later. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Thank you for saying that. Totally. So what else have we lost in this transition where we've, we've, you know, where we've decided birth is a medical process to be managed and drugged by authority figures? Um, for nearly all of human history, birth is the was the realm of women. You know, mm -hmm. women women birthed um, in the presence of other women, and um, sometimes those were women who were uh, in that role in their community as midwives, as women who were known to be. You know, that's their role to be there to attend birth. Often, it was your mothers, your sisters, your aunties. You know, the the neighbor woman. Like women helped each other give birth. And birth was women's work. And like all of life, um, birth sometimes entailed death and not, not every birth resulted in a um, healthy mother and infant. And that was distressing to people. And I think that probably were 
you know, um, loving human intentions behind this desire to interfere in birth of wanting no one to ever die during birth was probably this impetus for men wanting to take control over birth um, and women wanting to hand it to somebody. But I do want to say that birth works really well. And for nearly all women, birth was not a tragic traumatic process. It was just a human process. It wasn't a medical process. It was just what women did. I look at my own line. Both of my parents were born at home, not because their parents were hippies, but because they were born in 1929 and 1930 rurally. And Mm -hmm. both of my grandmothers had just fine deliveries. My, my maternal grandmother, you know, had, had 11 children and my paternal great grandmother had 16, you know, like all of these things happen at home and there were no immediate infant losses. There were losses in the first year to diseases and to, um, that's not true. My, my maternal grandmother did have, have a stillbirth. Um, Mm. but those things continue to happen now. We haven't eliminated things. In fact, our birth outcomes are terrible in the United States right now. They're not. Oh, absolutely. And not only are our birth outcomes terrible, but so many women talk about their humiliation and degradation Mm -hmm. in the hospital and yes. experience the entirety of birth as humiliating, which is insane because birth is the most empowering experience that a human being could ever experience. I mean, how could yeah. like you are the portal between worlds? You just face down pain and death and discomfort for hours and hours and came out of it stronger than ever like the 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 um uh it's a transformation for women to make to turn women from maidens into mothers to prepare them for all the you know i've heard i've heard not that i am a mother but i've heard mothers say so often that once they got through birth then they knew that everything that comes up in in child rearing which is very difficult of course is they're they're reminded like well i can do this i i birthed so right. I can do this. Like, okay, like, yeah, you have chicken pox. This fucking sucks, but I birthed. So I know I'll figure it out. Like, oh, we're okay. poor. I only have one job and your dad left, but I can figure it out because I birthed. Right. Exactly. Exactly. For me, that that has certainly been the case. I know for most women who have a, a consciously planned natural birth, that, that's the case. We find our strength in that experience. It's mm-hmm. it's amazing. And you know what? Like all of life, there are no guarantees and sometimes it, it doesn't happen. And, and I think we always spend so much time um, protecting and reacting to the sensitivity of traumatized women that we we feel like we're not allowed to celebrate the empowerment of birth and how that's the norm. That should mm-hmm. be the norm. It is designed to turn us into fearless, amazing mothers who are crackling with our own power because we know we can accomplish the impossible. Mm-hmm. And that's it's it's a gift to have such a rite of passage because parenting yes. is intense. Life is yes. intense, right? And mm-hmm. so the women are are broken now. Like we are, are living right. in a culture of instinct injured women. The I don't see the instinct other instinct that- injured. Let's yes. really let that land. Instinct injured women, and there's a, also a, a, a an effect on the babies because the yes. babies need to be squeezed through the portal, and they yes. need and like there needs to be that. Um, you know, in in archetypal astrology, and really in all astrology, the first step in astrology is casting the birth chart, and that is the 
not just the story of a person's life, it's the story of a person's birth too. And you can see that you can describe the every event of the birth through the aspects of the planets and um and where they fall in in which signs and in which houses and um you know especially in archetypal astrology we look to the outer planets to describe the stages of birth from unity with the mother that's neptune to the hard constraint of late pregnancy and and the beginning of contractions that's saturn to the the portal where the baby thinks it's going to die because it's being squeezed so hard it has no you know not the baby not the babies think but if the if a being has any consciousness at all it knows that like something kind of bad is happening like i'm being squeezed i don't know if i'm gonna make it that's pluto and then to emerge on the other side free and in a completely new world that's uranus and so you know we can see though we can see that same portal in so many parts of our lives like when we experience the death of a loved one we'll experience those four stages if when we go to college and and we're starting out at college we'll experience those four stages when we take psychedelic drugs we'll experience those four stages you know what i'm saying so like right. birth birth is something that babies need to experience too it sets us up for a lifetime of repeating the pattern of those four stages of unity crisis um, death and rebirth and that right. i mean you can see it everywhere you could see it every day in different events absolutely it is a, a rite of passage and um and it, it's so infinitely frustrating for me to see all of the people um with their their analyses of what's wrong with our culture forgetting to look at birth and refusing mm -hmm. to look at birth because of their own trauma around it, their own fear of women, their own fear of birth, their own fear of life, their own fear of death, their own allegiance to the medical system, on and on and on, their own inability to examine how they themselves are affected by the trauma of their own births. But I am thinking right now of um, Jonathan Haidt's book, The uh, the Coddling of the American Mind. And mm. I just reading that, and I agree with so much of what they are saying of why are our young people so fragile? And the whole time I'm reading it is like, when are they going to get to birth and mm. the over-medicating of childhood? When are they going to get to it? Mm -hmm. When are they going to get to it? No, they never got to it because they're allegiant to that paradigm of the medical management of all of human life. And right. they probably haven't even examined it, but they are clearly allegiant to it or they would, they would see it for what it is that what happens when we try too hard to make birth safe is we end up with people who are terrified of all of life. Wow. What happens when we try to make birth safe? And birth is as safe as anything in life. Right. Birth is, is as safe as life ever gets. Yes. Yes. And so you're really, you're really setting yourself up for a lifetime of antagonism between you and death. And the reality is that we came here to have all of these life experiences, like to go back to what you were talking about, the mythic and how all of our lives we engage in the mythic in order to process and experience this world as humans. We're just born storytellers. We're always engaging in, in meaning making and um, the creation of symbols. But my point is that what is my point, Mary Lou? I don't know. I, I lost it. But you know what I'm saying? It's like um we we came here to have 
contrast and conflict. We did not come here to live in safety and security. We came mm-hmm. here to be free and expressed and to um, learn. And so the experiences that we go through, including disease, injury, pain, crisis, um, that we, uh, whether physical, mental, or spiritual, we are always healing from the moment that we emerge from the unity of the womb. And some of us are sick even in the womb. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it starts even earlier. But every day on earth, we're seeking to heal and come back to the fundamental truth of our unity between like self, body and God. And in order to continue playing that cycle out over and over and over again, that's why disease comes in. And disease is not, therefore, a bad thing. Disease is really like fundamental to the process of exploration of our consciousness as individual beings. We we go through these periods um, in, in order to expand our consciousness and our relationships to one another. It's not a bad thing to get sick. It's not a bad thing to face down death. No, and, no. And it's it's not a bad thing to die and it's no. going to happen to all of us oh, thank and God. if we always <laughs> if we, we got always there view, if we always view death as a failure which is our cultural mm. paradigm of oh you know when we saw that very much through COVID of like oh if, if someone died it's because someone broke the rules mm. very mm. much in the me- mainstream medical system it's like you know who did something wrong who can we sue if somebody died it's obviously the failure of somebody or or it's the failure of the patient for eating poorly or not being adherent to their meds. Like death is viewed as a failure, which sets us all up for failure. It's mm-hmm. a no win game. Um, but again, if we come back to what is true, what has always been true, as we're trying to discern the truth in these crazy times where we don't have a unifying story as a culture, right? So what has always been true? All roads lead to certain death. Mm. Yeah. And I think that one more reason that it's so important for me to engage in healing work and, and uh, uh, in, in co-creating this podcast with you is because of my firm belief in the goodness and rightness and correctness of death, that we, that our lives are precious and finite and that we came here to live a brief time, to learn a bunch of things, have a bunch of experiences and then croak. And um, I think that one of the things that I find most disturbing about life in modern day America and, and really this this new world is the resistance and um, fear of death is permeates everything to the point where transhumanism or the belief that we could merge with machines to distance ourselves from suffering from the suffering of embodiment and the eventuality of death is absolutely evil i think it's truly like to go back to myth and symbol um it's the devil it's it's um it it's lies and uh truly evil i mean to to like to to engage with death as if it were um something to be deleted it it drives people to absolutely inhuman um interventions you know like where the the technology that's introduced into the healing sphere is ghoulish 
where it where you know people are um taking crazy um medications that are filled with god knows what and developed out of you know weird mouse or pig genetic modification and then combine you know gene spliced with human genes and mm-hmm. and and there's also like all sorts of surgeries to essentially create bionic humans and I'm not even talking about like for limb replacement I'm talking about like the the bionic nature of life extension which is everywhere now people are actually out here in public talking about how they want to extend their lives into the hundreds of years range instead of being happy with life as it is which is basically perfect if you're happy and connected with your community life is pretty sweet but it's not good enough for you you need to be you know engaging in all these really ghoulish and inhumane um technologies to to eke out a few more years of right. of self development cuz nothing none of this has to do with connection none of this has to do with preserving your relationships no none of these people give a fuck about like um still having a relationship with their aging parents they're thinking about like how many more things could i invent or how many more places could i travel or how many more experiences could i soak up if i just didn't die right so i'm gonna live forever right and then like you were saying with the transhumanism of people literally wanting to um achieve that um immortality through uploading their consciousness into the internet and to me, as someone who who was raised terrified of hell and had to um, literally like exercise myself of mm-hmm. of that that devilish idea of like I'm going to go to hell because I you know because I'm seven years old and I stole my sister's Halloween yeah. candy or whatever yeah. it is you know eternal punishment I'm like oh man uploading my consciousness into the internet to live in the internet forever is hell that is hell. That is hell. Like that, that is not something I'm interested in at all. To me, that, that sounds like hell. Um, so it's, yeah, this fear of death, this fear of mortality is, is so fundamental to our culture. And, mm-hmm. and what I've noticed, um, and I noticed it so much during, during the COVID era, um, was that people who live their lives terrified of death really don't like it if you're not afraid of death. Ooh, they also have a lot of willingness to dehumanize others in pursuit of their own self-protection. And right. so that that's really, really divorcing yourself from your ability to be compassionate and connected to others. Absolutely. And they, they are willing, to, like you were saying with the transhumanists, like they're willing to sacrifice human connection mm-hmm. if um, it, they're being given this, what I consider a false promise that that they won't die if they sacrifice human connection. Like people were willing to, um, you know, keep their children away from all human interaction because yes. they were so afraid of death. Like they're willing to sacrifice living because they were afraid of dying. Mm-hmm. And that's not rational, you know? And then, you know, I would be... It's cruel to children. I mean, the things that it did to children, stunting children's speech development, stunting children's social development, and the things that it did to the elderly. I mean, people's parents died alone and no one gave up 
fuck. I mean, really, like that has to be reckoned with. That is true evil to like let someone die in isolation. I can't imagine the cruelty that you have to have to to say goodbye to somebody over FaceTime. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like you don't care at all about the um about like holding your father's hand in his last moments. I cannot fucking relate to that. I truly can't. I I can't even imagine it. And the the I know the just the absolute um human atrocity of what what was done to the elders and yes. especially in the care homes and to keep them in isolation and and to to not let the elders make their own risk assessment. Yes. That was the piece that was making was really, really difficult for me to to witness was um you know, I'm like, if you're 85, yay, you won. Like every day is great. If you it's bonus. Right. If you haven't reconciled with your own mortality by the time you're 80, you failed the test. I'm sorry. Yeah. That sounds yeah. judgmental, but it's true. If yeah. you haven't, if you haven't gotten there where you're okay with your own mortality by the time you're 80, one thing it's a huge blessing to be 80. Both of my parents died relatively young. Getting old is is a gift. It's a blessing. Mm -hmm. And if you've made it to 80 and you're not yet reconciled with the fact you're going to die and you're at peace with that, you failed the test. You're not a good elder. You you didn't make it to elderhood. You missed the developmental stages that um, would have turned you into a wise elder. I'm sorry. There's always hope. There's always healing for you. But if you're going to continue to live in the next lifetime, (laughs) or maybe this one, there's always hope. Every day is a brand new start, right? Every day is a new chance. Yes, so true. But in the moment, you're not a wise elder. Mm-hmm. But what I saw was the wise elders weren't allowed to embrace no. their mortality. Many people in their in their elderhood would risk a, you know, love and joy and connection with their grandchildren, knowing that it might give them respiratory illness, knowing mm-hmm. in the course of human history, respiratory illnesses are a frequent cause of death of, of elders. Mm-hmm. This is, mm-hmm. this was not new news. Like we um, we've known that for, you know, I was raised with that understanding, just coming from a large extended family that, yeah, elders die of the flu. And, you know, that was considered um, not the worst way you could go. You oh, absolutely. Know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. But we we get we uh, obliterated all of that cultural wisdom. We um, we tortured our elders under the guise of protecting them. We didn't let them make their own their own risk assessments and their own choices. Just because you're elderly doesn't mean you're, you're no longer a human with free will. Like when did we, you know, it's, that's a whole other podcast. It's infantilizing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, I, as someone who questioned many of these interventions and was like, you know, give me the data that this is actually going to be good on from a holistic public health perspective, what we're doing, I was often, those questions were met with, um, this accusation of you want everyone to die. That's what I was told. Wow. You want everyone to die. You know what? I, I wouldn't say I want everyone to die. I though live in continual awareness that everyone is going to die. Mm-hmm. And a big part of my healing process is someone who, who, whose parents died when I was relatively young has been needing to embrace mortality and to understand that that's the truth of this life is you will lose everyone you love to death unless you die before that process has completed itself mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. Everyone you love is going to die and you are going to die. And do I want that to happen? I don't think that's even a useful question that is Mm-mm. going to happen. Mm-mm. I love life and I will um, do whatever links I can to promote uh, 
longevity and quality of life in people, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to pretend it's possible to cheat death or avoid death. And stopping living because you're afraid of dying is is just, uh, you know, really dysfunctional, unhealthy, tragic way to be. I think that for me, the question that I would ask back is like, how, what is your desire for someone to die in integrity and with dignity? Where, Mm -hmm. like, how, how do those values not um, weigh as higher on the list than just prolonging life indefinitely? I think like anybody who's ever seen somebody who's been resuscitated and intubated and stuff like this in, in the, at their end of life knows that there are very painful, undignified ways to die and to have life kind of forcibly extended can, yeah, can take away like a, a, can take a transition that would have otherwise been peaceful and turn it to a violent, chaotic, um, you know, mess that, that is like, like not peaceful in any way. And, um, right. Yeah, I don't want everyone to die, but I definitely want everyone who's going to die to have to have a modicum of dignity and integrity in so doing. And that's another place where our cultural beliefs come in of like, you know, that phrase death with dignity mm. now is synonymous with state assisted suicide. Oh my There's god, so thank many you for people. saying that. I didn't even make that connection as I was saying it myself. And that's a whole other topic. But we we really have lost um, our end of life rituals as well, and mm-hmm. that you know while there have always been people who died uh, young of illnesses and accidents, um, for humans who were blessed, and for many many humans, you know, uh, life culminated in elderhood, and then an understanding that this person is close to death for. And no one knows like birth, it's mysterious. We don't know what day it's coming, but we know Mm. to really honor and love and attend to and listen to this sacred person who's not with us for much longer. We do know that any of us could die any second, but if you're in the presence of an elder or a person with a terminal illness who has embraced the fact that they're at the end of their life, or if you're at the process of conscious end of life, time expands and and love is the only thing that's important and you want you want uh, to just be with that person so whatever love medicine healing interaction that needs to happen can happen and you can get the you know the fruits of that end of life experience and we have we've lost that as well um mm-hmm. during you know and that was lost with industrialized medicine you know yes. and and the um the funeral industry took away a lot of our death practices. Um, Mm -hmm. But the hospice movement of the seventies, like the, the home birth movement of the seventies was trying to bring that back. And now hospice has been captured by, um, by industrial forces. And the average time a person spends in hospice in the United States is less than two days now. Oh, because the medical industry tortures people with yes. drugs. Like if we look at oncology now, tortures, tortures. It used to be oncology not that long ago, like twenty years ago. Um, if you had a stage four cancer diagnosis, you went to hospice. Uh, Western yeah. medicine had nothing left to offer you. You either went to like alternative people, or you you came to terms with the the inevitability that this is 
almost certainly what you're going to die from. And you got your house in order and did hospice. Now with all of these um, new drugs, the, there's ton, most of the money being made in oncology is in stage four cancer now. So right, exactly. So it, let's pump you full yeah. of drugs and radiation that is going to make every one of your days filled with vomiting mm-hmm. and an inability to hold food down and an inability to engage with your family in any way, like standing up, walking around, doing th- mm-hmm. like normal things. No, that's not for you anymore. Like you're going to be bed bound. Right. And there's always some new hope they dangle that's some incredibly expensive Mm -hmm. drug. And I do, you know, I do know that for certain stage four cancers, there are medications that where people do have a quality of life. That's not most of them. And that's not all cancers. And I think this is where people have to look individually Mm -hmm. rather than just be in this place of death is never acceptable. I'm going to fight, fight, fight. Like I hear that from so many people, like I'm not going to ever stop fighting. And because of that, they have horrible deaths where they're just right. They're taking one more drug after another. They're being told, oh, there's a promising new treatment. And you look at the data and promising means these people got like 12 more days compared to the people who weren't taking it. And 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 not 12 more days with their family, not 12 more days of having fun and, and, uh, you know, being able to have dinners or whatever, like 12 more days of being fucking miserable and torture. And we've lost that beautiful embrace of end of life and of, of death and that's also hurting our culture that we've lost birth, this rite of passage that turns women into, into mothers in the same way it does for every other mammal. And now we've lost like the beauty of death and the medicine of death. Wow. Yes. I really it, see that. Sorry, go ahead. It's, I mean, it's just tragic. It's tragic. The, this mm. terror. And I see it over and over again of, People get angry if you mention it's time for hospice or people, Mm -hmm. um, people don't like, it's that place of where do you let go? Um, Atul Gawande, who's a pretty mainstream medical doctor, he wrote a book called being mortal, which is about Mm -hmm. this. And even in that, he doesn't really quite get there of like, where's the place where you say, let's call it, let's, let's say, you know, when I was a kid, hospice was like, you had um, a prognosis of six months or less. And many people we're in hospice for more than six months, but that was mm-hmm. six months of like magic and, and unconditional love and yes. everybody around you being understanding, yeah, you know, being attended to and knowing yeah. like life is precious. Every second is precious. No one wants to make that call now. Mm. You know, it reminds me how our death is such a gift for the, the ones who we leave behind. And what taught me that is losing my grandmother I'm gonna cry just thinking about it so when my grandmother was dying I remember um the last time I saw her uh she was not not entirely demented but not fully intellectually there but still there a little bit and um she you know I I sat down in front of her I sat down at her feet and spread out my tarot cards and I was explaining to my grandma that this was something that I was getting into and I wanted to share it with her. I wanted to, you know, show off a little bit, my, my special cards. And, um, you know, in the middle of the conversation, um, she, she, uh, she needed to go to the bathroom and, um, 
I had to pick her up and take her there and, and uh, clean her up afterward. And there was this incredible gift in it for me because I realized that um, since she didn't live with me in her old age, she lived with my aunt Laura. I had never had the humbling experience of having to meet an adult's needs as if they were helpless in, in this way. Like, you know, she was helpless in this way and she needed me to be, um, she needed me to caretake her um, in a really intimate way. And it was such a gift for me to have the experience of showing her um, love and uh, devotion. You know, she mm -hmm. just really deserved my devotion. She, um, yeah, she, she deserved it so much. And, um, I love my grandma and watching her die was so important for me because it, it brought me to an awareness of the depth of my love for her. It, it brought me to an awareness of her impact on my life. And, um, if, if I didn't have that experience of having to caretake her um, in her helplessness, I'm not sure that I would have, if it would have landed for me, like what it means to watch someone deteriorate. And that is a really important preparation because someday I'm going to deteriorate. Mm -hmm. And the gift that she gave me in let in like letting herself be helpless in my presence, letting me be the one to take care of her instead of a nurse or, you know, some kind of like um, attendant, which is wh what happens when we pawn the elderly off to nursing homes and stuff, was this like deep connection to my lineage and my uh, and the way I want to die and the way that I want to be surrounded by my children and their children when I die and to be, you know, to be in that place of honor because my grandma deserved to be honored. She had uh, lived an incredibly... She, she lived an incredible life. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so there's just like this massive gift in the vulnerability of becoming decrepit and old and helpless. And uh, and the gift is for the, the people who are still alive. It's to teach yeah. us um, this humility and devotion and respect. And uh, and it's to prepare us to for the transitions that we're going to go through inevitably. And, you know, I'm going to experience this again when my parents get old and decrepit and die. Mm -hmm. And um, I look forward to being the person that bathes their dead bodies. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. they really deserve my attention. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> really beautiful. Crying. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> And witnessing you describe that process and, and seeing just what, you know, the, the, the way this changed you, it brings me back to the, um, the similarity to birth, the other, yes. the other rite of passage, you know, we have the rite of passage in the rite of passage out. Yes. And that's not an anthropological term. That is a material term. Like we we're coming in, we're going out. Like these mm -hmm. are our passages and, and that unconditional love and that um, selfless caretaking of the new soul and the old soul yeah. are, are the same. 
right? It, mm-hmm. it brings us to that place of, you know, the baby comes and you can't even believe how much you love this baby and yeah. you're willing to be in service to, yeah, you're, you're yeah. wiping the baby's bottom. You're, you're attending to all the baby's physical needs because the baby is helpless. And, and then the, if we are blessed and lucky to live very, very long lives, there is a good chance we're going to end up in that same position at the end of our life. And hopefully there's someone there to love us up you know, at that end as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that um, one of, you know, I, I was not able to be at my grandmother's bedside when she actually passed. I remember I was in Seattle and she was in Indiana. So I, I remember like shouting into the phone, like, I love you, grandma. I'm so sorry. I'm not there. And I think about, um, you know, when, when people die, they're never gone. And uh, it, it's, you know, you could say like they're never gone because they live on in our hearts. And mm-hmm. that's um, however, Pat, it, it sounds, it's absolutely true. But for some of us um, like me, I believe that my grandmother is still very much here. I mean, I, I've, I've asked her to hold my hand sometimes when I've been in distress. I've asked her to visit me in my dreams. She sends me birds. She, um, she, you know, she communicates with me from beyond the veil um, still to this day. Mm. And, uh, and I know that, um, that is true for a lot of people like the, the dead never, that they are not accessible to us. We can't have a conversation with them where it's a back and forth anymore, but they're not gone. And, um, we are so much more able to access the dead when we are witnesses to every stage of their transition. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. And there's so much healing possible in those transitions Mm -hmm. where, you know, um, lifelong grievances, grudges and hurts get dropped whenever a conscious death is underway. And, um, and maybe that doesn't always happen healing, you know, you have to hold the realm of all possibilities, but the potential for healing and healing your entire lineage is enormous at a good death. Yes, And right. And death is a more I know birth has become this like social experience for a lot of people, but death is a more so social experience. Like everyone can come visit and for birth. We really want to protect the space of that woman. So she is not distracted by like a birth is about the woman and the baby. It is not a place for other people to right. find their healing. Right. It's for those <laughs> yeah. two people. That's not fair to the woman. It's not fair to the baby. Like it's a very private event for us and every other mammal. Um, death, for many is, is a more social community event where you, you know, everyone who loves you, if you're having a good death, everyone who loves you can come and, and bring you love and you, and receive your love and Mm -hmm. just get the, the last of the, the juice of your experience and put down hurts and put down grievances and have all that healing happen. And what a gift, what a gift. It's not something to, um, avoid at all costs and how, again, like I, I, I feel the minefield of these conversations where I'm like, oh, people, you know, Mary Lou Singleton doesn't care if people die. She thinks, you know, <laughs> she, you know, she, she thinks death is great. And, and wants everyone to die. And, and it's so know? true. <laughs> and again, I want people to live healthy, wonderful, vibrant lives and experience really wonderful deaths surrounded by their loved ones. And that's, that's what I want for everyone. And I know that's not 
you know, life doesn't work that that's going to happen for everyone, but that is what I want for everyone. Mm -hmm. That would be, if I could give like the blessing to everyone I meet, it would be, may you live a long, happy, healthy, wonderful life surrounded by love. And may you die peacefully surrounded by love. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, uh, I, I just think that I know we're gonna we're gonna do I'm sure we'll do many episodes that focus on both birth and death, but I do think that what you said before we started recording is so uh is so important that health is life, all healing starts with birth, and all healing is completed at death. Death like is the culmination of all of our healing journeys and nothing gets left undone, you know. When you die, it's complete. It's complete. Well, we should probably wind kind down of like there. this podcast. Like yeah. this podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Thank everybody for listening. I really, really hope that um that we're sharing medicine that's helpful to you. And and thank you for bringing your medicine in the form of listening with us. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, thanks for being a part of our journey. And I also want to say that anyone hearing this who is feeling inspired to share their own healing journey should get in touch with us at our Gmail, which is how I healed podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest or if you'd like to share your feedback about our podcast, where uh, we would be delighted to hear from you. Wonderful. And where can people find you, Jocelyn, if they're interested in your healing gifts? They can find me at Aunt Flossie on Instagram. So that's uh, Aunt, like Auntie, um, at Aunt Flossie. At Aunt Flossie. Great. (laughs) And if people would like to find me, I am at EnchantedFamilyMedicine.com. That is my website that describes my practice. Or you can follow me on Instagram. I am at Mary Lou Singleton and I'm also on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're I'm, also on Twitter. I'm on Twitter too. I forgot that I'm on Twitter. Mary Lou Singleton. Yeah. I'm not super active on Twitter now known as X. So, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, you can find me there as well. And I also want to say that for those who would like to stay updated about our podcast and anything that we may be doing, you should uh, consider joining our ma- mailing list, which you can find through our Instagram, how I healed at how I healed pod. Um, I think that's what it is. I could double check or our sub stack, which is how I healed. Um, so we will uh, we'll be putting that out on our socials in case I misspoke or said that wrong or you can't figure out what the URL is. And uh, we Uh, Yeah, we we look forward to engaging with you and learning about your healing journeys. Mm